Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, everybody. This is Heidi DeRoe. I'm your host of The Mixed Experience, the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed, brought to you by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. And, wow, we have a great guest today. I know we always say that, but I actually always do have great guests because they're people I want to talk to who are doing interesting things. So, yes, they're always great guests. Today's uh, guest is offering a story about something I don't know a whole lot about and I'm so excited to learn because I think he's doing amazing things and he's an up-and-comer. But before I um, introduce you to our guest today, I wanted to just do a couple of little announcements. One, this is kind of weird, uh, maybe, but at some point I may actually monetize this podcast. This is not part of it, but I do have a promo code for you in particular, if you're interested in using this new thing called Jet.com. I'm not making any money from it, just by the way, but they, you have to activate it by tomorrow, uh, August 18th, all right? So, um, yeah, so email me, Heidi at HeidiWDeRoe.com. Make sure you do it today so I can send you the promo code and then you can activate it. It's kind of like a rival to Amazon, and I've used it, and I am really enjoying it, and... Anyway, you know, why not? So what you get with the promo code is a free year of membership, which is $50. Uh, why not try it? Send me an email, but send it today so I can get you the promo code. Okay, um, other stuff I know. You've heard me talk about this if you've listened to the show. I run and founded the Mixed Remix Festival. It happens every year in June. And so you may not be able to get to L.A., but guys, you've got to get there next June. I'll announce the dates of the festival probably in the next week or so for next year so you can start to make your plans to come and visit us. But here's the thing. We had a videographer this year who was able to capture the live event, Storytellers Prize presentation, and it was amazing. We had a young woman who was 18 years old, and she ended up getting three standing ovations, and she opened the show. That's how the show opened. So if you want to see that video, head over to our YouTube page. It's Mixed Remix Festival. Just go to YouTube and pull up Storyteller's Prize, and you can see it's, it's edited down a little bit, but you get most of it, and you'll get kind of the feeling and flavor of what the show is and that energy. Guys, that energy is mad crazy. Hey, by the way, if you're doing that, then you may as well also just go over to the website, www.mixremix.org, and donate. Why not? It's totally free. It's not, not totally free to us. No one gets paid to do the project whatsoever, and we need your support. So why not? Okay, one last thing. One of the festival favorites, Matt Johnson, who wrote, well, he's written so many amazing books. A dear friend of mine, his latest book is day. Um, if you want a copy of it and you also want to donate to the festival, you can go over to our, our website and click donate and click through 
and you can get a copy of his wonderful book, Loving Day, with a small donation to the festival. And uh, the news is Showtime has picked up his book, and they are going to make it, I think, a mini-series, if I understand it correctly, and that will be a producer on it. So bravo, Matt Johnson. If you haven't read this book, I don't know why you haven't read it. It's so good. It's one of the best books I've read in many years. And, uh, and now it's going to be on Showtime. Represent the mixed experience, Matt. Thank you so much. Go donate. Get a copy of the book. That's all I'm saying. All right, here we go. We have a really fantastic guest today. I was um, flabbergasted. I hadn't figured out who he was before. I saw it in the LA Times. Why is the LA Times telling me about mixed stuff? But I'm so glad they did because I didn't know anything about his project, uh, Blacksicans of Los Angeles. But let me tell you a little bit about this wonderful guest, Walter Thompson Hernandez. He's a researcher, photographer, and documentary filmmaker based out of Los Angeles. And he's beginning his doctoral research uh, now, like in the fall here in 2016. He's L.A. raised and born, and he's a recent graduate of the Stanford University Latin American Studies Master's Program. Go Stanford, represent. He is currently a researcher at the University of Southern California Center for the Study of Immigrant Integration and Program for Environmental and Regional Equity where he's part of a research team that's working on a forthcoming book about Latinos in South LA. Outside of his work at CSII, Walter's research looks at issues related to immigration, race, Afro-Latinos, and sports in the United States, Latin America, and Europe. His research and projects have been featured by CNN, BBC, Los Angeles Times, and Univision. His latest academic project will be featured in a forthcoming book titled Afro-Latinos in Movement, Critical Approaches to Blackness and Transnationalism in the Americas. I am uh, super pleased to welcome Walter Thompson Hernandez to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. First question. Ready? Ready. What are you? <laughs> uh, that's the age-old question, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> I am the child of an African-American father from Oakland and a Mexican mother from the state of Jalisco, Mexico. Um, what that means is that I, I self-identify as a black skin, which is, um, you know, just a way to really identify with um, the vastness of my identity, you know, and my ethnicities and cultures. So to, to answer that question, I am a black skin. Yay, great, wonderful, perfect right answer. I mean, you would have gotten it right no matter what, but right answer. Okay, so Blacksican, I said this to someone the other day, and they, like, chuckled and giggled. They were like, that really is a thing? And I said, yeah. But So I'm wondering, um, was it always a thing for you? Were you always able to identify this way? Tell me a little bit about growing up here in L.A. Uh, with yeah. this identity. So, so the, the answer is no. Um, I think the first time I heard the word black skin, I was in, I'd, I'd say, the fifth grade. And, you know, I was born and raised in, in South L.A. And so, you know, in my community, um, I grew up in a community that was, at the time, you know, African American and Latino, but today it's over, I think, 98% um, Latino. Um, so 
this was a time when, you know, black folks and Latinos were really, you know, living in the same communities and, and working together and essentially, you know, loving together, right? And so the first time I heard the uh, term, you know, it it, it, uh, it kind of blew me away. You know, prior, I always knew that I was African-American and I was black and I was, that I was Mexican, so that's what I would say. But the term, like, so the first time I heard black skin, I was like, wow, you know, finally a term that kind of gets me and, you know, finally a term where, um, not only kind of um, celebrates this richness, right, but also connects me to other people who may have similar experiences and who may be uh, navigating similar challenges. Well, when you were growing up, did you also speak Spanish? Absolutely. So, you know, it, it's funny. Um, I was raised in a very Mexican home, you know, so I can say that Spanish was essentially my first language. So, you know, I learned English, I think, you know, uh, later on in schools and stuff. But, you know, I grew up, like I said, uh, my father wasn't around growing up, so I grew up with a, a very Mexican sensibility of life, you know. And uh, every winter vacation and summer vacation, I'd be sent to Mexico to be with my grandparents, right? So I grew up culturally and ethnically very Mexican. So Spanish was uh, a big part of my life, and it still is today. And was there any kind of schism for you? Because, I mean, you know, I said I, I said to you I'd love to have a conversation about this, but I feel like um, there's something I could learn from you in that you have this same bicultural identity that I have. Right. I grew up speaking Danish essentially with my first language because that's mm-hmm. all I spoke to my mom in, and I spoke English with my dad and at school, right. and a very Danish identity at home in terms of traditions and culture right. and, and food especially, and summers yeah. in Denmark. And I, I wonder, was... The, the same, did you have the same experience at some point, maybe it was puberty, maybe it was later, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. realizing that the world wasn't recognizing your Mexican-ness, your mm-hmm. Mexican identity, yeah, and yeah, how yeah, true yeah. it was? And, right, and what was no. that like? Uh-huh, absolutely. So, I mean, that's, you know, I think very much part of the multiracial experience, you know, is it, having to struggle and navigate a society that doesn't really recognize your wholeness. Um for me, you know, I think when someone sees me, you know, phenotypically, they can't really place me. You know, I, you know, it, it often comes, to, you know, uh, to, like as a surprise to people that I have an Afri- African-American father, you know, that, that my dad is black. So people usually think I'm, I'm Puerto Rican or Cuban or Dominican or something Caribbean, right? So I kind of ha- have had... Something, op- something brown, some kind of right. brown type <laughs> <Exactly>. person. <laughs> the spectrum, right? Um, <laughs> so I think for me growing up, I kind of had, you know, in, uh, you know, a different experience where it wasn't necessarily trying to prove my Mexicanness because, I, like I said, I grew up in a very Mexican home, Mexican community. I was in Mexico. Um, but it was essentially trying to find ways to learn how to be black, right, and to really prove my blackness, you know. So that schism absolutely existed for me, and, and it does for a lot of for, for a lot of other black skins in Los Angeles, but it's always been this sort of tension that had existed with, like, trying, you know, to prove that I am black, right, that, that I have a black father, you know. So that's the schism that, that has really um, existed. And how did you navigate this? Like, what was the mm-hmm. answer for yourself in actually showing up as black or proving you're black? I don't know if you're <laughs> familiar with Matt Johnson's work, but, you know, Matt yeah, Johnson yeah. has described himself as looking like a, Croatian soccer player and <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> very much uh, identifies as African-American and now more right. so as mixed race. 
But mm-hmm. so what what did you do to show up as black? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's actually uh really funny that you bring up, you know, sports and soccer, right? Because, you know, I you know, basketball was uh, a large part of my experience growing up and it wasn't until about uh till about five years ago, you know. I, I played high school basketball, I played division one basketball, I even played professional basketball for for a few years in Latin America. Um, I played for the Mexican national team for almost two years. So so growing up, you know, I mean most of my basketball teammates were black and were African-American. So for me, you know, my entrance um, into blackness, per se, was through sports and, and learning how to be a black man in Los Angeles and the U.S. came through basketball. So, you know, it's really funny because um, I kind of had time to contextualize this, you know, and, and I'd say that, you know, in my early years as a teenager, um, I kind of had this, like, weird thing going on where I was like, you know what, like, I want people to know that I'm black, I'm a black father, so what do I do, you know? So I, you know, tried to immerse myself, you know, into basketball and, and kind of had this, like, idea that the better at basketball I become, like, the you know, the blacker people would see me, which is really interesting, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, and so, and, and so I don't oh. know, I'm like, yeah, oh. that was my entrance into blackness was through sports and through basketball. You know, I'm laughing only because I totally <laughs> get it, that it's yeah, easiest to, like, latch on to the the things that are stereotypical, exactly. what you're saying is you're trying to be and be good exactly. at that. Um, right. but, but tell me about whether there was any um, internal price for for trying to make this show of things. Or did yes. it not matter because you loved the game and, and you wanted to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I absolutely love basketball, you, you know. So I think, you know, I've come to this realization now that, that is what I was doing, you know, maybe on the subconscious level, you know, that's what I was doing. I mean, I, I was never explicit about it, but, you know, it, it was the case that, you know, all all of my friends were black and African-American and, you know, I was completely a- a- accepted by, by my black friends and their families. You know, when I told them I had a black father, you know, I mean, they kind of knew, right? And, and, and they were very accepting of that. It was, it, it, you know, the same wasn't the case for my Mexican friends and, and, and even Mexican relatives who often forgot that I had a black father or, or who kind of challenged me on, on that idea, you know. Um, when I would tell people that, you know, my father was black, you know, a lot of folks would be like, well, you don't look black, you know, or or, 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 or even worse, prove it, right? And I think, uh, <laughs> and, and, and how do you do that and, as a 15-year-old? Yeah. Right? <laughs> how do you do that? So, you know, um, and it's really interesting because I think uh, looking back now, you know, and, and now I'm more versed in, 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 you know, academic research and historical context about Los Angeles, but also about blackness in Latin America. You know, I think it, it, it kind of played into this idea that, you know, we have this, this really homogenous understanding of what black can be, right, and, like, what blackness represents. And for a lot of Latinos in Los Angeles, you know, if you were black, you were supposed to look a certain way, you know, typically, you know, I didn't fit into that sort of racial equation for them. But, you know, but I was immediately embraced by my black friends and their relatives, and, you know, um, it's been uh, a really amazing experience since. Well, so a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about before we talk some more about your scholarship and then this wonderful project that you're doing, uh, Black Kings of Los Angeles. One is what is the black-brown divide? I mean, you know, I hear it always in the news, especially around um, electoral politics and, and who's going to vote for whom. Does this really exist, the black-brown divide? Is this something that the media has hyped up that 
mm-hmm. I just am not aware of or, or mm-hmm. what? Yeah. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's a really complex question, right? And, you know, to answer that, I'd say uh, yes and no. Um, to answer the uh, yes question, you know, it, it goes without saying that, you know, Los Angeles, you know, uh, you know, in thinking about race in Los Angeles and, and even like racial uh, the communities, you know, um, communities are often very segregated in Los Angeles. You know, you have your black parts of L.A., you know, uh, Mexican, Latino, Asian, et cetera. So to say that there isn't often racial tension or even racially motivated violence in Los Angeles is, is to obscure the uh, truth, right? I think, you know, the the struggle for, you know, you know jobs at times, um, you know, racial tension exist on, on so many different levels. You know, growing up for me, I, I remember in high school, and a lot of people my age can kind of recall these experiences, you know, there were race riots in Los Angeles, you know, in, in Los Angeles high schools uh, during the early 2000s, and they lasted, you know, they would spring up occasionally, but I think since the year 2008, there, there really hasn't been any, you know, and a lot of, you know, so these race riots consisted of, you know, blacks and Latinos against each other, essentially, you know, so I went to a high school that was predominantly uh, black and Latino. And and so that kind of placed me in this tricky predicament, you know. Um, and the way I sort of evaded those racial tensions was through basketball again, you know, like I stayed in the gym, you know. That was mm-hmm. my, like, safety net. That was the way I, I didn't get beat up, you know. Um, so basketball kind of, like, saved me in that sense. But there yeah. are, you know, racial tensions in Los Angeles for, for, for lots of reasons. You know, oftentimes Latino immigrants immigrate to Los Angeles with certain ideas about black people, about blackness, and they're often negative. There's also the media, which really sensationalizes, you know, a lot of black and brown relationships and, and experiences. So it's a very complex question, and I think the answer is also complex. You know, there's no simple way to, to, um, to address that than to say that, you know, there are times and there aren't, you know. Uh, black and Latinos uh, are not always fighting, and they're not always getting along. You know, it, but but definitely, it's much more complex than the way it's represented in the media uh, today. I think, and I, I guess that's the upshot of what your scholarship is about. But but before before we get to that, I just mm-hmm. here's the thing: I feel like I often talk to more women about these issues, about mm-hmm. mixed race identity and experience, right. and men don't necessarily weigh in as often right, or right. maybe they're not as open to it. Am, am I reading this wrong? What do you think? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, in my own research uh, with like meeting with, with, with blacks in Los Angeles and Afro Latinos in Los Angeles, you know, there is this uh, tendency I found of, you know, of, of women coming out and being more open about, you know, their experiences and, and feelings and, and sentiments. I think that might play into you know, this, this whole idea of masculinity and the sort of parameters of that, you know, and the um, sort of constricted way that, that you know, as, as men of color, you know, we, we often aren't as open about sharing our feelings and our experiences. We might believe that's like showing weakness, you know, or what have you. But um, I would absolutely agree with that, you know, and more blacks and women, you know, and Afro-Latinos in Los Angeles are, are much more open about their experiences. And, and um, you know, that's that's sort of a, a question that, that I've also been grappling with as well. And, you know, I hope my scholarship kind of gets at that as well. Well, as you as you do your work as, as a scholar and your research, um, what's the tactic to do the outreach, to actually get those voices 
heard or to tap into those communities? Yeah. So, so the way I, you know, um, this research started uh, about two and a half years ago uh, when I was a graduate student at, at Stanford University. And in those days, you know, um, I, I use something called snowball sampling, and 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 what that is essentially, you know, uh, is a way to to meet with interviewees and um and to amass a list of of, of respondents, right? People who, who would want to be part of your project. So I would meet with with someone who was recommended to me, um, you know, and, and then at the end of our interview, I, I you know I would ask them, hey, do you have any relatives who might be interested in being interviewed? Do you know any other blacks in Los Angeles? So. That's kind of how it started, um, and you know, through the years, um, in the past few years, I've gotten you know requests now to be interviewed. You know, I get emails now. Uh, people contact me on Facebook. Friends of friends will will call me and text me and be like, hey, you know, I have someone who might be uh, interested in your project. So that's kind of the way that I've been able to to meet with folks in Los Angeles, and um, I've, I've kind of gotten to the point where, you know, people are now emailing me, families, you know, are, are inquiring about this project and want to be a part of it. And so um, it's gotten a lot easier to meet with people and to incorporate their stories. Well, what's so wonderful is that your scholarship has actually turned into a, a, a popular platform for people okay. to express themselves. It's called Blacksicans of L.A., and it's on Instagram. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project and how it's developing? Absolutely. So, so, um, so, like I said, um, you know, my academic research began at Stanford, and I'm, I'm now at, at USC, kind of continuing that same vein. And you know, um, I was, I mean, really, the Blackskins of LA Instagram project kind of came through this need to, to really, you know, share the research I was finding and share the photos and share the stories, you know friends and relatives of mine and people in my community, you know, would ask me every single day, like, hey, Walter, like, what do you do? You know, and, and, and I was telling them, well, <laughs> I'm an academia. People ask you know, me I, that I, all I, the time, too. They're like, <laughs> oh, really? You're really writing another book, really? <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and, and I would tell them, well, you know, I mean, put it simply, like, I write, I research, I, I, I interview people, and, and, and still, you know, like, I had aunts and uncles and, and cousins who, who kind of still, I mean, they would smile and be like, oh, yeah, that's cute. You know, that's really cool. But <laughs> it, they didn't really understand what I was doing, right? And, and, and it also, I mean, this project also came from the need to, to really, you know, I mean, academic research is really great. You know, it allows you to investigate these, like, really important questions. But oftentimes our publications are, are really catered to a limited audience. You know, only you know, other academics are really engaged with our, our research and our writing. So, I wanted my research to really transcend the bounds of the university campus, right? So I thought about Instagram. I had an Instagram account prior, and, you know, it was a way to really, like, share photos with my friends, you know, and I liked their photos, they liked mine, and that was awesome. But I thought about, you know, I've always also been into photography and taking photos, you know, and I thought, you know, maybe there could be a way that I can integrate my photographic interests with my academic research, and this Blackskins of Our Life uh, account was the way to do that, you know. And it kind of worked out really well because, you know, uh, this project by nature is, is, is very visual, you know. And, you know, if I'm incorporating this, this visual element into my research, then it really allows the people not only to, to, uh, to people so, so that people can engage with, with photos and stories and excerpts in a way that's um, extremely accessible. Well, tell me about some of these amazing 
people who you photograph uh, that are part of the 66 posts. You have 2,216 followers, which is awesome. But right. there's such a diversity of looks. Um, tell me about some of the people that you photographed here and their interesting Blackskin mixes. Absolutely. So, um, like I said earlier, you know, within any multiracial identity or, or, or category, there exists, you know, um, tons of, of nuance and complexity. And, and I think um, the black skin experience really allows us to, to see that. You know, um, every interview that I um, that I conduct in Los Angeles, you know, I learn new things, not only about that person, but also about myself and my community. You know, there are, I mean, because at the heart of this project, um, there are questions, large questions of immigration, right, of, of identity, of, you know, how we think about race, of, of, of religion, you know, of family structures. So some of the stories that have emerged, you know, are absolutely mind-blowing, you know. They, um, I, I mean, like I said, I'm learning something new every single time. And, you know, there's one story that, that really sticks out to me, you know, and it's a story about this young woman who was, you know, um, who's a black-skinned woman who was born and raised in Long Beach, and, you know, was raised by a single father, by a single Mexican father. And, you know, I met with her a few months ago, and it was the first time that I had ever met with someone who was raised by, you know, a single Mexican father. So I had tons of questions for her. You know, um, you know, I, I, I had questions about the whole hair issue. You know, like, how did your father do your hair? You know, It's you always know, about the hair. It's right, always right. about the hair. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and it just really blew my mind, you know, how this this young Mexican father was was raising this black woman, and you know how he learned how to raise her. You know, he would uh, teach her about Nina Simone. You know, he would you know look up videos. He would ask his neighbors how to how to do her hair. You know, he would take her to to museums to learn about her black heritage. You know, and it was it was an amazing story that you know really allowed me to see that. You know, I mean, it it kind of just takes love, support, and unconditional backing, right, of, of any parent to, to make that work. Um, but there have been countless other stories and, 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 and interviews that I can speak to, but I think that one was one of the more powerful ones. Well, do you see things, I mean, you are talking to people who, uh, many people who are younger, but also some people right. who are older. Do you see differences in the generation's stories? Are things actually changing for Blacksicans in L.A.? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. This is a project that is really guided by, you know, people, by by the stories and experiences of people my own age, you know, between the, you know, 25 and, and, and 35 around that, that age, group, and even um, a little younger. But the experiences are a bit different. You know, um, I I met with one man uh, who grew up in Los Angeles in the 1970s and 80s, you know, and we're talking about growing up in L.A. at a time when, you know, particularly South Los Angeles, right, you know, Compton, South Central, at a time when, you know, there was, you know, the hyper-policing of black and brown bodies, right? We're talking about complete disinvestment of economic resources in South Central, you know? What I'm trying to say is this was a, a, a very tumultuous time to be both black and brown in, in, in South L.A. And so his experience, you know, he speaks about, you know, not knowing any other black skin in South L.A. at the time. And, 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 you know, he really had to navigate this experience alone. You know, he didn't have social media. 
didn't have Facebook, you know, didn't have the Black Skins of LA Instagram account to really, you know, like help him make sense of his of his identity. So, you know, he talked about, you know, like living in, in complete isolation and always being the only one. Today, it's a much different experience. You know, um, I'm meeting with, with folks who are 19 or 25 or 30 who talk about, yeah, you know, uh, I wasn't always the only black skin. You know, I had a neighbor who was also black skin. The term black skin it existed for me, you know, whereas it didn't exist for that other man who, who grew up in the 70s. So it's a different experience. And, you know, I'd say uh, race relations between African Americans and, and Latinos today, you know, we can say are you know, a lot better than they were um, in the 80s and 90s. So to be a black skin today, you know, does mean that you still have to navigate some of these challenges, but there is a community out there and there is growing support um, for that experience. What, what I have loved seeing in the last many years of the Internet, really, like we as mixed people and mixed families have been able to connect with each other no matter where we were. So, yeah, we may be alone in Iowa, but we're not alone on Facebook. There are dozens of right. pages and Instagram accounts. And so people are connecting in lots of ways online. But do you, and now, you know, this is really a question, and I don't know the answer, and I'm struggling with it for myself. Yeah. Do you see that there actually is a multiracial movement right now? And if so, how how do you define it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I think that's a really tough question to, to answer. Um, but I know. I, I was hoping yeah, you yeah. answer it so I could write <laughs> down the answer and then publish right, right. it myself. Because, you know, I was trying to write an essay today about this idea. You know, I threw out, I was uh, visiting a graduate student seminar at UC Santa Barbara a few months ago in the spring. And, um, you know, they hadn't been assigned my writings, but I was there to talk about my activist projects, the podcast, Mm -hmm. the festival, my my own novel. And um, Mm -hmm. I just, you know, they were interested, but it was kind of a collective you know, there's no, and so to get a rise out of them, and I said, you know, I do all this work, and I know a lot of other people mm-hmm. do a lot of work around these issues, but I don't think there's a multiracial movement. I think there are a right. lot of people out there talking about it, but I don't know that we're actually moving the needle on the conversation yet. Right. Um, right. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think there are more uh, sort of like there's more awareness, right, about what it means to be multiracial. But at the same time, you know, we can't, I think, argue with the fact that, you know, we are living in a much more, you know, this country is becoming much more multiracial, multilingual, and multiethnic by the day, you know. And so when we think about, you know, this multiracial identity in 2015, I think we do have to recognize that, you know, there is much more awareness uh, of, of being multiracial, you know, in academia, uh, in uh, you know, there's something now called critical mixed race studies, which you know didn't always exist. Um, I think, you know, in commercials, right, in in the media, in, in television, in the film, I think you know, uh, multiracial individuals are are represented at, at, at higher rates. I think uh, also uh, this might be an incorrect figure, but I think one in every, I think four or five children today are 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 multiracial. Um, so, so I think what these like data points tell us and, and numbers tell us is, is that you know the racial climate that we're living in today 
is, we can say, maybe more accepting or aware of what it means to be multiracial, and these conversations are maybe occurring at higher rates. But in terms of, of really, you know, creating this multiracial movement, I don't know if, if that exists, and, and I can agree with you. Um, so, so it's you know, it's incredibly interesting, too, you know, as we think about the year 2043, you know, and 2043 being the year that a lot of, you know, social scientists say that this country will become a majority minority country, right? So, you know, it, it's interesting to think about, like, what it means to be multi- multiracial today in the context of, you know, this growing sort of uh, racial minority state. And um, Los Angeles, to me, you know, has, has always been, Los Angeles and California more broadly, has always been uh, America fast forward, meaning that a lot of the uh, trends and, 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 and practices that occur in Los Angeles and California, you know, are, are, are really indicative of what's to come in the U.S. So I think understanding uh, what it means to be multiracial in California and Los Angeles can, can really maybe tell us a lot about about what it means to be multiracial across the country. Yeah, I I'm, I absolutely agree with that. And I wonder, you know, I, I'm wondering about next steps because mm-hmm. I, I feel like we are at this point where, yes, there's a critical amount of awareness about these issues. Uh, the Pew Research Center study that came out in June once again showed that we are the fastest growing demographic. But how how do we make that meaningful beyond those numbers? Like how do we make that make meaning for the mainstream ultimately? Um, I I guess what I'm trying to say is how do we get outside of our insular conversation of congratulating each other and (laughs) and greeting each other, you know, and like finally nodding at each other and recognizing our stories (laughs) to actually make sure we're incorporating the mainstream Mm -hmm. into what what is going on to make them realize that okay so if there are you know 10 million or 9 million multiracial people right. in the United States and I'm not a math person but like someone's got to <laughs> yeah. do the math on this those 10 million people are related to uh, their aunts and right. uncles their cousins on on the white side or the black side or the Mexican mm-hmm. side and the mm-hmm. Asian side and you know and mm-hmm. then on and on and on and so it's not just that nine million number that we should be talking about or with we should be talking about all of those other people and the ways in which they experience right. their own multiracial connectedness they're like they're multiracial adjacent i guess <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> yeah, but, that, but that's important like that's how we get to be multiracial people right yeah uh no i think it, it's um you know one thing that i'm always thinking about is you know particularly with this project is, you know, um, thinking about multiracial identities in more inclusive ways. Uh, you know, it's not just about, I mean, we can say exoticizing ourselves, right? You're like, yes, we're multiracial and we're kind of different than than a, than than a society, you know? So I think my project isn't about, you know, like, it's not about flag waving, right? It's not about, right. you know, like waving this flag, like, hey, look at us, you know, this is us, like, we're this new emerging identity. Yeah, you know, I think... I've always tried to really incorporate this more universal element to my research and scholarship. And, and, you know, and in thinking about that, I think, you know, multiracial scholarship and and projects that that, that really grapple with those identities, you know, need to really be stories about belonging and not belonging, you know? And and I think that that's, that's sort of the angle that that we can take to, to make this, these projects more about social cohesion 
and inclusion. Uh, uh, you know, because I mean, that's what I think my project is really about. You know, it's not just about black. It's not just about Afro-Latinos. This is really, you know, a, a story about us, a story about the U.S., and a story about the trajectory of race relations and the meanings and practices that, that black skins attach to their experience. And like you said, you know, I mean, we have brothers and sisters and neighbors and coworkers who don't identify as multiracial, but they impact just as much as we impact them. So I, th- I think I- I'm always trying to think about this, like, you know, what are the sort of larger implications of my research. And it's that, you know, that this is a story at its heart of belonging and not belonging. I love the way you said it, say that. And, and that's what is exciting when the mainstream, like, that's why I'm super am celebrating this idea that Showtime, Showtime of all places, right. is taking on Matt Johnson's novel, which is amazing, but it's very yeah. much about multiracial and mixed race experience and identity and that's going to be on the you know not the big screen but it's going to be on a main stage showtime of all places so everyone has access to the story and they get to find themselves in that like so you know a white guy gets to find himself in you know the character that matt johnson has created who has a liminal identity and and then what does that mean like doesn't that ultimately change the ways in which we think about race when white people can enter into mm-hmm. uh, em- empathy with otherness. Right, exactly. Right, like that, I, I mean, I, I, so I love the way that you describe your project in that, in that way too, uh, that it is ultimately a gateway for even the mainstream person, right. whatever that means, the majority yeah. to enter into otherness and, mm-hmm. and belonging. That's great. Well, you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're, so you're you're in LA now, and yes. um, you're still looking for people. Uh, if there's someone out there who'd like to be part of the project, they can email um, you at blacksicansofla at gmail dot com. Correct. That is correct. Awesome. And they can find the project on Instagram at blacksicansofla, and then your personal Instagram. Should I give that out? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. definitely. At, at, at my boss, um, C-H-I-V-A-S, and then your personal website, WTHDZ.com. Walter, I'm so glad I caught you because I have a feeling you're going to be really busy when school starts in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you know, I'm actually heading – so last year um, I did a project in Belgium about multiracial identity. And um, it was what? a project about, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm um, writing about a woman who lived in Belgium who was mixed race. Oh, no way. Um, I would love to read that. I absolutely would. Well, well, well I have to finish writing it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so I was going to say that, that, you know, I'll be heading to Madrid um, in about a week and a half to kind of continue with this research, um, I'll be there for about six or seven weeks, and, you know, I'll be doing, like, an extension of what I'm doing here in L.A., what I did in Belgium, and I'll be doing that in Madrid for about seven weeks. So, um, yeah, that's my next step is um, heading back to Europe and really uh, trying to do this comparative sort of analysis of what it means to be multiracial in different um, regional contexts. I didn't know this, but, okay, so I've got to keep you just a couple seconds longer. When I was in college, I I did it. A semester abroad in Salamanca, which is in northern oh, Spain. Beautiful. It's a very different beautiful. experience than being in the south, and and also right. different than being in Madrid. 
and they just did not know what to do with me. They, um, right, of course. I had, I was treated the worst I had ever been treated in life because they couldn't recognize right. me as African American, mm-hmm. and all they knew right. at that time, this was the 80s, uh, they knew Michael right. Jordan. He was right. black, right. and so all black right. people must look like him. So I have to hear more about the influence you get from people. So you've got to come back on the show is what I'm saying. Please. I would love to. I would really love to. Awesome. Um, uh, we have a guest uh, who wanted to say something, but I wanted him to chat it in, but I think we're out of time. So um, guest five, if you want to email the question, uh, you can email me at Heidi at HeidiWDuro.com, and I'll pass it along and I'll put it up on the, on the blog um, for people to see. Uh, Walter, thank you so much. You were so awesome. Um, we'll definitely have you back, and thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, no, um, you know, uh, it, it's really great that there are these, like, platforms and these, like, sites and these podcasts that are really dedicated to um, this experience. I think it's it's really important. Um, and so um, I'm celebrating you, you know. Thank you so much for uh, doing what you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's, it's a labor of love. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, okay, great. Thanks so much. I will um, talk to you again soon. Safe travels. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So that was great. That was Walter Thompson Hernandez, a really awesome, delightful fellow. I didn't know he was so delightful. An up-and-coming scholar. If you do have questions for him, I'm sorry we couldn't get uh, your questions in today. We actually have run far too long. Uh, but email me at Heidi at HeidiWDuro.com, and I will either forward the um, question to him, or you can send the question to him directly at LA at gmail.com. Thanks so much for um, joining me today. Again, I have a great guest next week live. I don't know how I was able to score such wonderful people to be able to coming in, but uh, next week, uh, Monday at 5 o'clock Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, and uh, thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.